Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Reading Our Times, where your normal host, Nick Spencer, for once occupies the other chair. I'm Daisy Scalke, the BBC's Head of Religion and Ethics for Television, and I am delighted to be the one interviewing the author this time. We're here to discuss Nick's new book, Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion. And the book has hit the shelves at an especially interesting moment in our understanding of the dynamic between the two subjects. A comprehensive piece of work undertaken by Theos last year found that 57% of the British public see science and religion as incompatible compared with 30% who see them as compatible. Now, there are similar figures from other countries around the world, but of course, the picture is far more nuanced when you pull those numbers apart. Things shift a bit when you ask people about specific religions like Christianity or Islam rather than religion generically. And when you ask people about specific sciences, neuroscience, medical science, cosmology, etc., the majority actually see these as being compatible with religion. Perhaps then, as the research suggests, the story of the alleged opposition of science and religion is a bit more complex than the headlines. Perhaps the idea that science and religion are at loggerheads is a narrative with a lot of smoke, but not as much fire as we think. So, where does that narrative come from? Where in history does the idea that science and religion are in conflict originate, Has it changed over time and is there any truth in it? This is where Nick's book steps in. Hello, Nick, and welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've heard great things about the show. (laughs) As indeed have I. So I wanted to kick off by asking you briefly if you could set out what we mean by religion and science, because From reading the book, it's clear that the way we understand the terms today is very different from, say, the Middle Ages or the Enlightenment. So could you help us understand what we even mean when we use the words religion and science? I can try. I won't be able to do it briefly, but (laughs) it's a messy subject. That's why. I mean, you're absolutely right. They're relatively modern terms in the sense that the way we use them has only crystallised in the last 150 years or so. The terms, or the terms from which science and religion come from, have got a long history. They go back centuries, even millennia. But they were used in different ways. So science kind of really means knowledge. But it only crystallises into the range of different disciplines that we now cluster today under the rubric of science in the 19th century, a period in which it was professionalised. Religion comes from Latin meaning binding together. It was used 
originally in the Reformation in the 16th, 17th century as a way of referring to the way in which different groups of Christians, different denominations of Christians were grouped together into religios. Mm -hmm. And then that term was appropriated when the Europeans sailed across the world and discovered other things that looked a bit like different Christian denominations, things that we latterly called Hinduism or Taoism or Buddhism. We called them religios, religions. And so by the 1800, roughly speaking, there were lots of religions around the world. And science, in its modern term, was gradually coming into focus. But it was a messy and complex process on the way. Okay, interesting. So if we sort of accept that when we use those terms in a contemporary context, we're talking about science as a body of knowledge and religion as a group of belief systems to reduce those two down. We could do that, but even that's a bit complex, really, because Mm. if you think about what science is, many people will go to the idea that it isn't a body of knowledge, it's a method. It's It's an approach to acquiring a body of knowledge. And then other people will point out, well, actually, particle physics hasn't got a great deal to do with sociology, which hasn't got a great deal to do with archaeology. In other words, different sciences have different approaches to acquiring knowledge. So we can call it a body of knowledge, or we can call it a method of understanding. But it's important to recognise that even today, when we think we've honed in on a clear idea of what science is, it's still sprawling. I'm very open to interpretation. Yes. So in the process of putting this book together, was there a moment that leapt out at you as an origin story in the narrative that these two different disciplines are incompatible? That is there a, a big bang in the concept of these two subjects as being at war with one another? Yes, there is. It's more of a, a whimper than a bang to, <laughs> to reference T.S. Eliot. But there is a moment. It's almost exactly 150 years ago, really. It's 1874. A book is published by an American chemist called John Draper. Draper also considers himself to be a bit of an intellectual historian. In his chemistry, in his science, he's understood everything in terms of forces and laws. He applies that to what he sees as the history of science and religion. But he brings with him a fair amount of anti-Catholic prejudice. He's writing in North America in the 1870s. This is a time when the Vatican is asserting its authority in the face of modernity. It's a time in North America where there are high levels of immigration from Catholic Europe. So there's a fair amount of Protestant hostility towards Catholicism. It's an era in which Darwinism is bedding down and there is still an awful lot of resistance to it religious resistance, as well as scientific resistance, it has to be said. And what Draper does is effectively pick up those themes and treat them as a lens through which he views the entirety of the history of these things called science and religion. There had been a long tradition of polemic against Catholicism and science from Protestants, And Draper kind of picked up on that and applied it not just to Catholicism and science, but to Christianity and science, and even to an extent to religion and science. So what was it about that context that made it ripe for that to take root then at that particular moment? Because as the book outlines, there are multiple other moments in history when that really could have lit the touch paper. Number of things, really. The central argument in the book is that science and religion are not competing narratives. They're not non-overlapping magisteria, as Stephen Jay Gould called it. They do overlap, they do entangle, but they particularly entangle around two issues. One is the question of humanity, and the other is the question of authority. Who gets to say who we are? And both of those 
were really up for grabs at the time that Draper was writing. Darwinism had cast lots of questions over the nature of human origins, human morality, human destiny. The question of what is a human was a very live one in the 19th century. And at the same time, around the middle of the 19th century, science is professionalised. If you'd gone to the beginning of the century, the majority of scientists would have been probably ordained. At the end of the century, they're absolutely not. They're professional scientists. So the question of authority within society, and particularly authority to adjudicate on that question, is being transformed. And when those two things come together, humanity and authority, that's the time when this myth of the conflict of science and religion really takes off. That's so interesting, isn't it, that this is the moment where we see that battle for who gets to say what is the human experience. Whereas if we rewind the clock, the perception around those two disciplines and being able to understand that is very, very different. And that those uh, science and religion are both seen as essential in understanding the human experience and with equal weight in being able to do so. And looking back at particularly the, say, golden age of the Islamic world, the picture is very, very different. It is. Interestingly, there are comparable tussles over authority, even in the Islamic world. We're talking about this is the time of the Abbasid Caliphate. So around, roughly speaking, 800 AD to 11 or 1200 AD in particular, centering on Baghdad. It's a period of extraordinary richness in which the Greek science of antiquity is welcomed. It's translated, often interestingly, by Syriac Christians, translated multiple times, and then it's built on by early Islamic scientists. But even then, there's some tussle around, is it philosophers or theologians who have greatest authority to adjudicate on these matters? Interestingly, a a similar tussle goes on in medieval Christendom about four or five hundred years later. But we shouldn't be surprised at this. If you go onto any academic campus in the world today, there's always going to be tussles around whose discipline is most significant, particularly whose discipline is most significant for those issues that we deem really central to human nature. The fact that Muslims in the 9th century or French Christians in the 14th century were having the same battle as clerics and scientists in the 19th century shouldn't surprise us. It's human nature. Wasn't there a greater collaboration, though, perhaps, even though if there was still this tussle for authority, a greater cohesion between appreciating that one discipline may well have something to bring to bear on the other. And I'm thinking particularly about sort of interpreting, translating, exploring scientific texts in light of the newly formed Islamic theology, that science was seen as essential to religion and religion to science in that context. Yes, there was. And this goes back to your earlier question about disciplinary boundaries. Effectively, there weren't any, or at least there weren't any anything like as absolute and clear as we had today. So in medieval Christendom, you talk about natural philosophy, you talk about mathematics, you talk about medicine. Now, these end up being clustered under science, but there was no real sense that there was this thing called science that exists as an entity of knowledge outside the wider body of knowledge that's so interesting because we often look back at the medieval period as the so-called dark ages, scientifically dark, religiously fervent. But actually, was that the case? Or were these two disciplines, religion and science, as we now would understand them, actually coexisting very harmoniously, acting as a spur one to the other? It was much more harmonious. There is a danger that in trying to address the myth 
of conflict and warfare, you go right to the other extreme and imagine that the whole thing is absolutely <laughs> loving. And, it, and it, it's not loving, but then intellectual life isn't a loving. Intellectual life <laughs> is about conflict and disagreement. So we shouldn't be at all surprised about this. But the principle that the created world should be studied, that the created world was law-governed because it was created by a law-giver, and that one would somehow understand that lawgiver, one would understand the creator, God, better by studying nature, has deep, deep roots. The old metaphor was that there were two books that God had created, his book of words, the scriptures, and his book of works, nature. Now, very few medieval Christians would have disagreed with the idea that the book of words was more important But that didn't mean the book of works was unimportant, quite the contrary. It was an indication of, some indication of who God was and what God had done. So why do you think that we have such a different view of these periods of time now? Why do you think we like to look back and sort of neatly encapsulate these moments in time as dark and with science and religion so opposed? Actually, that's not what was going on. It's not. It's propaganda. And in the first instance, it was Protestant propaganda. So what happened was the Protestant denominations in the later 16th and early 17th century wanted to intellectually demarcate themselves from the Catholic Church. And they did so in various ways. They distanced themselves from Aristotelian science, which was the bedrock of all natural philosophy done in Europe prior to, certainly prior to 1600. They did so by saying that we approach science with an openness, a willingness to question, and a willingness to experience, not to take the written word and the written authority as absolute, but to question, to experience, to test, to experiment. Unlike those Catholics who aren't allowed to study various things because the papacy won't let them, or who have certain books placed on the index because the papacy doesn't want them to, or who treat Aristotle as if he's God himself. Now, that's caricature of what Catholic science was, but it was one that was very popular amongst Protestants, for all the obvious reasons. But a couple of hundred years later, those same tactics, those same approaches, are used against Christianity as a whole and religion as a whole. Interesting. So it served the purposes of the next generation coming out of that particular period. Yes. Um, And looking back again, I think from our contemporary perspective at the Enlightenment, that is often somewhere that we now look back on and think this conflict narrative is at its height. The period's worship of rational thought above all else. Actually, what you say that's so interesting in the book, caveating that this is outside France, which had its own thing going on, that this period was the period of closest harmony between religion and science. Now, that struck me as a very bold statement. It is, and I'm prepared to defend it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What I mean by that is, at the end of the 17th century, after the wars of religion and theological disputes, more and more people are turning to trying to find a source of knowledge that isn't amenable to the theological disputations that have afflicted Europe. We can't quite agree on how to interpret the scriptures. We can't quite agree on the importance of the church fathers. We certainly can't agree on the significance of church authority. What can teach us about reality, about God? Well, nature, nature, we think, in theory, is unmediated. It's clear. It's not 
contorted by human words or authorities. If we study nature, we'll be able to get a pure, unadulterated picture of reality. And the scriptures encourage us to study nature. And so by the end of the 17th century, this discipline of natural theology has developed and it's almost considered a form of worship of God. And more and more of these studies of natural theology say, well, if you look at the planets, look at the stars, look at the life on earth, look at the formation of the human body, look at snow, look at locusts, look at mussels, you name it, you can see fingerprints of the divine there. So this discipline of natural theology became fantastically popular as more and more clerics, clerical scientists, clerical naturalists, did science in one hand and interpreted it theologically in the other. Within this context, I would love to pick up on a character that you write about who I hadn't come across before and I think speaks so brilliantly to what you're saying. And that's Margaret Cavendish, often without much recognition. So I was really excited to read about her in the book. Could you just tell us a little bit more about who she was? Yes. Well, I have to say, I wasn't familiar with her before I wrote the book either. I can't remember what her birth name was, but she's Margaret Cavendish because she married into the Cavendish family, the Duke of Devonshire family. And as a result of that, she gains access to a network of intellectuals that her mind merited. Really, she achieved through marriage what her mind merited. And that meant that she corresponded with or was certainly familiar with some of the great things of the time, Descartes and Hobbes and Cassendi and, and others. It means that she attended some of the early meetings of the Royal Society that was founded in the early 1660s in London. I think she was the only woman, one of the very, very few women who were allowed to attend those meetings in which natural philosophy, science was discussed. And she also wrote a series of letters that were published, I think, in 1664 that put forward her own thoughts on these matters. What's particularly fascinating to me when I read them was that she is a materialist. Mm. She sees matter acting on other matter as the basis for all action on Earth in a natural way rather than always being supernaturally or spiritually moved. Now, in the mid-17th century, this was a position that someone like Thomas Hobbes would adopt, which was considered basically atheistic. But Cavendish argues there is nothing inherently atheistic in this approach. You can take a thoroughly materialistic approach to nature and even posit things like other animals. They're not just dumb, empty vehicles or machines. They think and they feel and they know and knowledge and communication and feeling pervades all of creation. And in their own way, these creatures give glory to God just as much as mankind does. So she has these remarkably radical thoughts, but is able to marry them to a Christian theistic worldview. So with Cavendish in this particular period... You actually talk about there being perhaps too much harmony, that there's a problem with concordism and that that can be problematic for both the disciplines. Could you explain a little bit more about what that issue would be? So one of my contentions in the book is that we tend to focus on oppositionalism as being the big problem with science and religion. Oppositionalism is when science and religion are opposed to one another. I've argued that actually concordism, when science and religion are in agreement with one another, unquestioned harmonious agreement, is a much bigger problem. 
I can explain that by telling you a little story. A bishop, Bishop Ellicott, writes to James Clark Maxwell, brilliant Scottish physicist, mathematician, in 1876, I think it is. The bishop is writing a book on apologetics, effectively he's arguing for Christianity, and he wants Maxwell's opinion on Genesis 1, the light of Genesis 1. What is it? Now, Maxwell is a very devout evangelical and also quite brilliant mathematical physicist. And he says, well, if I were forced to interpret it, I would describe it in this way. But, he goes on to say, I would be loath for you to pick up that interpretation and use it in your book of apologetics, because that is an interpretation of Genesis in accordance with the science of 1876, which will not be the same as the science of 1896. And it's effectively an argument that the religion that marries the science of its age will, within a generation, become an embittered widow. So if you find perfect harmony between your understanding of religion and today's understanding of science, beware, because today's understanding of science will not necessarily be tomorrow's understanding of science. And all the foundations that you have laid for your religion will crumble away. Doesn't that speak quite well to where we are now or part of the discussion that we see now, which is the acceptance that science is consistently revealing new truths about our reality and progressing towards a greater understanding of the true nature of reality. While on the other hand, religion continually has to move the goalposts with God moving further and further back to accommodate these new truths. But if that in fact isn't the case, How can we understand the position of religion in relation to an ever-deepening scientific understanding, be that of the 19th century or even today? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question, really. So the first thing to say is this approach says you put warning lights around finding a contemporary scientific idea and using it as a foundation for your religion. So over the last 45 years or so, there's been a popular understanding of the universe being fine-tuned. There being a series, Martin Rees called just six numbers, a series of six consonants that are finely tuned to an almost infinitesimal degree, which tends to show that had they been detuned even slightly, the universe, as we know, wouldn't have existed and life wouldn't have existed. Some religious thinkers have said, ah, well, this shows that the universe is perfectly designed absolutely exquisitely designed for life. But other scientists have come along and said, well, actually, that might just be our universe. Perhaps there are multi-universes. Now, I'm all for provocative, entangled discussions between contemporary scientific ideas and contemporary religious thought. I just don't want the latter to base itself on the former. That then invites the second part of the question, which was, okay, does that mean that religion is always just moving the goalposts? And to some extent, it's true, because over the years, over the centuries, different Christians have had different ideas about the nature and creation of the universe and of the world and what stuff has been made of. It doesn't matter hugely to your religious faith if you think that there are only four substances go to create the universe, or if you have an atomic understanding. What really matters, and this is going back to the point about humanity, is what this says about the human. Because if science says humans are only, and that word is heavily underlined, are only influenced by the stars, or they're only evolved mammals, or they're only selfish genes, or in our own age, they're only information processing systems... 
they become the kind of creatures that aren't envisaged by the great religions. So I do think religions do move their goalposts a bit because they're flexible over a whole load of things. But when it comes to the question of the nature of the human, that is, I think, where they tend to draw the line in the sand and say, well, that scientific understanding of the human might be right, but it can't be exclusively right. It can't be at the expense of other understandings. That's so interesting. So do you think that it's where scientific discoveries appear to threaten a perceived threat to the concepts of human morality, human dignity, that the conflict between science and religion or that perception of the conflict is at its most tense? Absolutely. So one little example. We don't consider phrenology a science today. Phrenology was the idea that you could read the human character off the bumps on your skull. It was a serious science in the early 19th century. The most popular science book published in English in the 19th century was George Coombe's The Constitution of Man, massively outsold Darwin's Origin of Species. The idea was feel somebody's skull and you can understand their character and their morality. Now, it wasn't unquestioned as a science at the time, but it was pretty widely appreciated Christians, and in particular evangelicals who were in the ascendance at the time, didn't like it. Why didn't they like it? Well, if the skull allowed you to read someone's morality, they didn't have any freedom. They couldn't be free to be good or bad. And if they couldn't be free to be good or bad, there was no justification in morally judging them. Or, as the evangelicals would have put it, they wouldn't have had souls to either save or damn. And so they went into battle against phrenology... looking at things from a very different perspective and actually reframing the idea that these two disciplines have been at war with each other for millennia. But as you do say in the book, there'll be key moments when history that will leap to people's minds. What I wanted to ask you about was the three headline-grabbing battles, Galileo in the 17th century, the Oxford debate in the 19th and the Scopes trial in the 20th century. Can you explain a little bit more about how each of these events were viewed at the time compared to how we look back on them now? Yes. Galileo was much mythologised. He was an example, Protestants claimed, of the way in which the Catholic Church strangled independent thoughts. Now, there was a great deal of bias, really, in that view. Initially, Galileo's observations are welcomed. And from about 1610 to about 1615 or so, he is lionised and celebrated The weather turns on him in about 1615, 1616, partly because he has this genius for making enemies, partly because now it seems as if there are greater, more far-reaching implications from his theory, and subsequently because he hugely overplays his hand. And eventually the Inquisition silences him, and that's a gift, as I say, to Protestants, who then treat it as the core example of the way that the Catholic Church suppresses independent thought. In the 19th century, there are lots of things going on, but perhaps the biggest one behind the Wilberforce-Huxley debate is the fact that Samuel Wilberforce is a very intelligent establishment cleric and naturalist, and a reasonably good one. Thomas Henry Huxley has not been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's had to fight his way up, has really had to struggle over all of his scientific achievements, and he is one of the new breed of professional scientists. And what he is doing in Oxford in 1860, and he says this pretty much to the audience, a public audience should not be adjudicating on these matters, 
and a bishop should not be speaking on them. This is a scientific matter and it should be judged by people with scientific credentials. So there are lots of things going on in Oxford in 1860. One of them is about the battle for professionalism and who deserves to be called a scientist. The Scopes trial, 1925 in America. Again, lots of other things going on. But it's very interesting that of the two great protagonists, William Jennings Bryan had been a presidential candidate in the 1890s for the Populist Party, for the People's Party. He considered himself to be a defender of the people. And what really riled him about Darwinism, and particularly the way in which it was presented in the textbook over which the Scopes trial was fought, was that it seemed to remove the inherent God-given dignity of the people. It is interesting that one of the themes that's underlying the Scopes trial is eugenics and the idea of social Darwinism that society, not just nature, but society developed according to Darwinian principles when the weakest were effectively, they went to the war. And that was one of the things that Darrow was fighting about at the time. So then if we look more towards the origins of our very contemporary narrative around the two subjects, science and religion, Einstein obviously steps onto the stage as perhaps the heavyweight in the conversation. And you quote him in the book as saying, relativity is a purely scientific matter and has nothing to do with religion. So how do you feel that his views about the role of science religion coming together or not inform the modern narrative? That's a lovely quote. It's from a dinner he had with Archbishop Randall Davidson in about 1921, I think it is, when Einstein's doing a grand tour. Davidson has been told by one of his friends, relativity is a very, very important issue. It's got a lot of implications for religion. And he's given a book by this chap, Haldine, to read about the reign of relativity, I think it's called. And Davidson cannot make head or tail of it. And he complains to one of his friends at Lambeth Palace, the more I read Haldine, the less I understand him. So eventually, when Einstein comes to dinner... Davidson plucks up courage and towards the end of the meal leans across and says, hey, doctor, tell me what implications your theory has for religion. And Einstein, without missing a beat, says, absolutely none. Relativity is a purely scientific matter. It has no religious implications at all, which I imagine Davidson was actually quite glad about in the end. Einstein's also being a bit naughty there, though, because as far as I'm concerned, others may dispute, I don't think it has significant religious implications, relativity. But Einstein couldn't stop talking about religion. He kept on referring to religion. He kept on referring to God. Niels Bohr at one point said, Albert, will you please stop saying what God can't do? You know, Einstein said, God does not play dice. Einstein loved invoking religion. Now, on the one hand, he was not a religious person at all. You know, he denounced what he considers to be the primitive myths of the Hebrew Bible. He was not a religious worshipper in any way, shape or form. So to claim him for the religious side is wrong. But equally, he vigorously denounced in public speeches the idea that he was being captured by the atheist side. He was unboxable. At best, you could call him a kind of Spinozan deist. He was influenced by and was similar to the kind of inchoate spiritual pantheism, but in very heavily inverted commas maybe, of Spinoza, the Dutch philosopher in the 17th century. But you can't pin him down. And that's one of the reasons why he's such an attractive figure. He's elusive. And that approach has everything to offer us today when we're looking at how we might reframe this conversation. And to your earlier point, we don't want to continually look at religion in light of scientific discoveries, because actually that can be a fairly unhelpful problem, as we saw with the Enlightenment, with Concordism. But actually, if we took more of an Einstein approach, which was 
to reference, to relate to, to draw on without necessarily adopting one to the other. We actually have room for both in a way that feels perhaps more complicated, but nevertheless cohesive. Uh, We do, but I personally wouldn't want to push that too far because so much of Einstein's rhetoric around here is just mystifying. I mean, it might point to the complexity of the issue, but it certainly wouldn't give you any cohesive view on it. And if you want to get any clear view of the relationship between the two, I would personally steer way clear of Einstein because it's impossible to understand really what he means with this spiritual rhetoric. That thought, then, if we're to look at someone who perhaps might be a more helpful embodiment of a dynamic that is more useful for today, could I ask you to say a word or two about Georges Lemaitre? (laughs) (laughs) Lemaitre is a fascinating character. He met Einstein in Brussels in 1927 when Einstein was with the greatest physicists of the world in the Fifth Solvay Conference. Lemaitre was a very junior cosmologist at the time, wasn't invited, but had written this interesting paper about Effectively, it looks like the universe is expanding, based on theory of relativity. And Einstein thought the young man's mathematics were impeccable, but he intensely disliked the idea. Not least because it appeared then to suggest that the universe had an origin in time, and therefore that the universe had a beginning. Now, that was not supported by observational data at the time, most importantly. It was just a theory. But secondly, Lemaitre was a Catholic, and not just a Catholic, he was a priest. So a number of people thought they could smell a kind of a theological rat here, a priest trying to smuggle in the creator back into science. Now, it transpired that Lemaitre's calculations were right and that a generation or so later, more and more observational data came in which confirmed the idea that the universe was expanding and the further away it was, the faster it was expanding and therefore it seemed to have an origin in time. As we know now, that was around 13 and a half billion years or so ago. But the fascinating thing was, even though some believers, a number of believers, including no less a figure than Pope Pius XII after the war, seized on this idea and said, look, we now have evidence, concordism, you see, we now have evidence, scientific evidence, proof, no less, that there was a moment of creation. There is a moment of creation, therefore there is a creator, Pius once said. Lemaitre was horrified by this because he realised that that really wasn't how the science was working and you don't base your religion on the science like that. And in any case, you would cause more and more people to doubt the science if you drew so many religious conclusions from it. So Lemaitre then intervened with the Pope's scientific advisor and said, could you please tell the Holy Father not to draw these conclusions because they're, they're philosophically, theologically speaking, they're not sound conclusions. Now, I'm not saying the idea that the universe is contingent, it has a point of origin in time, is irrelevant to this conversation. It's not. It's an important point. But again, it goes back to this point that if you then use that as the foundation stone for your religion, you're creating an enormous hostage to fortune. But how beautiful that you've got this person who was so humble and didn't take any of that glory for himself when perhaps he could have done, but nevertheless was so crucial and a man of such faith to our understanding of the universe as we understand it today. Yes, there's a lovely photo of a black and white photo of Lemaitre in his clerical dog collar standing next to a blackboard, which is covered in, to you and me, impenetrable chalk equations. And, you know, if you want a visual image of the positive interaction between religion and science to put against some of the more popular antagonistic images and stories, we know that really does the business. 
And how useful would it be to our understanding of that conversation if we did have that, perhaps as, a, as an example, closer to hand in the public imagination? Whereas in that same part of the century, we also have Freud, as you mentioned earlier, revolutionising the perception of religion in a way that I think we still hang on to today, that religion is perhaps a primitive superstition which is dying out. And that seems to be a very modern view that, albeit not in the same way as the new atheists of the early noughties, uh, there are elements of that that sort of stick in this idea that science and religion are still warring factions. Do you think we are again on the cusp of seeing religion losing out to science in the public imagination by holding on to those narratives? Well, I think that you're absolutely right to foreground Freud there and before him, Fraser, and indeed the anthropologists. It's fascinating how anthropology basically begins as a Christian discipline. And as it's professionalised, it becomes almost an anti-Christian discipline, married to a deep progressive narrative that develops at the end of the 19th century, which sees religion as an example of primitive cultures, which then develop more philosophical and ultimately more scientific understanding of the world. That then passes into a sociological mindset in the 20th century where we see religion dying out because it appears to be dying out in Europe. What's happened in the last three generations really is that the world has, as it were, unhitched itself from the European wagon. Up until mid-20th century, perception was where Europe led the rest of the world followed. Well, China, India, Southeast Asia, many other parts of the world, not least Africa, have slowly modernised and industrialised in the last few generations. They have not lost their religion as part of it. Indeed, arguably, they've become more religious in some instances. So what we are seeing at the moment is the prospect of the 21st century being more rather than less religious, now, that does nothing to prove the truth of any religion, but it does tend to undermine the idea that as humanity progresses, and I'll put that in inverted commas, they naturally lose their religion because it doesn't appear to be happening. So given what you've just outlined about the global picture of religion in the modern context, how do you see the narrative around the conflict between science and religion changing, if at all? The problem is conflict is such a powerful narrative. In the academy, it's been made redundant, but it hasn't been replaced with anything because there are no metaphors, really, that are simultaneously nuanced and yet clear. Stephen Jay Gould's idea that science and religion were non-overlapping magisteria was a bit clearer and arguably a bit more nuanced, but I don't think it's true. But the conflict narrative as the research that you quote right at the beginning that we did with YouGov a couple of years ago remains strong. I do also think that a lot of the seeming growth and religious adherence in the 21st century will be amongst the religions or the denominations that have a slightly more antagonistic attitude to science. So, for example, 25 years ago, Stephen Jay Gould said, creationism, it's American, it's fundamentalist, it's limited, you're not going to get it anywhere in the world. Well, creationism has become a much, much bigger thing in Islam in the last generation or so, much bigger than it was a generation ago. The mainstream denominations, Anglicanism, even Catholicism, which were working in lockstep with so much scientific development in the 19th and 20th century, are tending to give way to more fragmented, charismatic, Pentecostal forms of Christianity 
that tend to have a more antagonistic relationship, particularly with, with evolution. So I fear that the conflict narrative is here to stay, not because it's true, but because the different dynamic changes in religion in the 21st century might end up inadvertently feeding it. If you factor into that picture, scientific developments around neuroscience showing us increasingly how the brain works and identifying sections of the brain where religious experience could be measured, do you think we're also demystifying the faith experience? How do you think that plays into this global picture that you've just painted? So that's exactly what some people think, that a part of the brain lights up when we're praying or when we're meditating. And therefore, that's all that prayer and meditation are. It's just brain activity. But a part of your brain lights up when you eat a cheese sandwich. Your brain lights up in a certain way when you're anxious or when you're in love or when you're tired or, or whatever else it is. That's what the brain does. It tells you nothing about the content of that action or that thought. So, if you want to describe reality simply in neurochemical terms, go right ahead. But it goes back to the point that we've talked about several times in this discussion, that it's when you posit narrowly exclusive explanations of reality, then the problem comes. Reality is multi-layered and it is amenable to different levels of explanation. You can explain humans at a neurochemical level, at a skeletal level, at a muscular level, so on and so forth. But you can also explain us at a relational level, at a social level, at an existential level, even, I would argue, at a spiritual level. And a true understanding of the human will be open to that rich, multi-layered description rather than trying to say that there is only one legitimate description, whatever it is, and all the others are somehow irrelevant. A bit like a multi-storey car park. There are many different layers that we can access at different points, but all together they create the holding pattern for who we are as people. They do. They do. That's a, a very beautiful metaphor, even if multi-storey <laughs> car parks aren't beautiful. No, no not at all. <laughs> there was one area that seems we are approaching where science and religion will need each other and therefore may help to shift the narrative a little around the fact that these are two warring disciplines into two things that can operate in lockstep. And those are things like genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, areas where science is developing at such a pace and that impact our understanding of what it is to be human, where the human experience is central to those disciplines. And surely religion has to be side by side with science in those areas. So do you think that's a sphere in which science and religion could come back together and be perceived to be coming back together? So I think that so much, I'm currently co-writing a book on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> so the book ends a little bit by talking about AI. But if the premise of the book is right, in that the science and religion conversation is most interesting, most relevant when we're talking about the question of the nature of the human, we're going to see a lot more of that in the 21st century because science is, in lots of different ways, as it were, parking its tanks on the lawn of humanity. So you mentioned AI and genetic engineering. Radical life extension might be a third one, the way in which we are seeking to enable people to live to 120 and then 200, and then perhaps in perpetuity. The huge pharmacological turn there has been in mental health profession in the last 30 years or so. The extraordinary growth of the idea that we can treat things like depression 
purely pharmacologically. There, there are other interesting areas. The question of animal personhood is, a, is one of the extent to which we should recognise, legally recognise the personhood of intelligent animals because they feel, they experience, they think, they empathise, so on and so forth. So there are lots of different areas. Now, I would argue that these are deeply religious questions because they involve our understanding of who we are whether we have a purpose, what the relationship between the mind and the body is. Indeed, the very idea of personhood, going back to the point of animal personhood, personhood is a theological term, really, or at least originally a theological term in Western thought. Now, this isn't an exclusively religious issue, you could say this is a philosophical issue, but it is definitely an issue that religions have been profoundly interested in and that have a great deal of wisdom to draw on. So I think that actually... The 21st century could be an extraordinarily rich period for dialogue between science and religion if we go about it the right way. I did want to end with a quote. This is from you. It's not in the book, but where you've said, at its heart, the story of science and religion has much less to do with the existence of God or the age of the earth or even the origins of life and much more to do with how we think of ourselves as human beings. It is essentially a story about who owns the right to define what a human being is. And I would suggest that your book digs into exactly that to show the idea that science and religion have been warring one another for millennia to be not the case, and that each actually has its place in our understanding of the human experience, and indeed who owns the right to tell us. So... The book is called Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion. And Nick Spencer, thank you for speaking to Reading Our Times. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Daisy. Next week, I'll be back in the interviewer's chair, talking to the novelist Marilyn Robinson about her book, Absence of Mind. If you can't say what a photon is, because it is so elusive in the terms of any physical description, then you don't need to worry if you can't describe the soul in those kinds of terms either. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger and our team includes Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast.